Good morning and welcome, new community. My name is Amy and my husband is Kevin. We moved to Spokane six years ago for grad school. Um, I currently work as a private practice dietitian and Kevin is a mechanical engineer at Kaufman Engineers. Our story at Newcom started before we moved to Spokane. Um, we were here for a campus tour and um, tried out. We were here for a Sunday and tried out uh, Newcom. We immediately knew it was a place we wanted to be and have been here since. Um, throughout our time here, we've been a part of two awesome small groups and have continually been encouraged by the growth we've experienced in both our faith um, and as people. Uh, we have always felt lucky to call Newcom our home uh, from the time we were like brand new to Spokane and didn't know anybody um, to now when we feel like we are immersed in community. Um, I do look forward to the day that we can meet, meet in person, but for now I just want to say hello and welcome to the Sunday Morning Podcast. Please join me in our call to worship this morning. Abide in God, and he will abide in you. Whoever abides in him will bear much fruit. As the Father has loved the Son, so the Trinity has loved you. May we live as a group of people that God calls friends. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Spirit of the Divine One is the Spirit of love and all peace. The Spirit abides in the heart of those who embrace God's calling and live Christ's mission. The path will not always be straight, and the terrain at times will be treacherous. However, the purpose is assured, and the Spirit will guide us to all truth. And those who abide in truth and love will know the hope, rest in the peace, and experience the joy of the community of Christ. Lord God Almighty, your understanding is unsearchable and infinite. Your arm cannot be stated. Your agency extends through limitless space. All works hang on your care. With you, time is a present now. Holy is your wisdom, power, mercy, ways, and works. How can I stand before you with my numberless and aggravated offenses? I've often loved darkness, observed vanities, forsaken your mercies, trampled underfoot your beloved Son, mocked your providences, flattered you with my lips, and broken your covenant. It is because of your compassion that I am not consumed. Lead me to repentance and save me from despair. Let me come to you renouncing, condemning, loathing my sin, but hoping in the grace that flows even to the chief of sinners. At the cross may I contemplate the evil of sin and abhor it. Look on him whom I've pierced as one slain for me. May I never despise his death by fearing its efficacy for my salvation. Whatever cross I'm required to bear, 
let me see him carrying a heavier. May my soul rest in you, O immortal and transcendent one, revealed as you are in the person and work of your Son, the friend of sinners. Welcome, new community, to our weekly podcast. Wherever you are at, however you are listening, I am glad that you're here with us. We're continuing our series in the Minor Prophets. We are in the seventh book, and today we'll turn our attention to the prophet Nahum. Nahum is one of the shorter books in the Minor Prophets, and if you've given it a read in the past, then you know it's uh, a very encouraging book, a real uplifting book. which on podcast, I understand it might be hard to tell, but I am being incredibly sarcastic right now. Because honestly, Nahum is a very tough read. Uh, It makes me uncomfortable. And I think it forces its readers to ask questions. Questions about God, questions about humanity, questions of how things can spiral so out of control and where in the midst can we find hope? This morning, I hope that uh, I might be able to provide a little bit more insight as to how we can get into and study a book like this. So let me pray, and then we will venture in. God, be with us this morning in our endeavor. We pray that uh, the book of Nahum would be a place where we are challenged, a place where we can understand to a greater degree your movement in history. Lord, may we uh, be willing to wrestle with tough questions, and I pray that you would meet us in those questions. I pray that we would have uh, community around us in this very strange time uh, that would help to push us and challenge us and walk alongside of us Uh, as we each endeavor to know you more. So be with us, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, Nahum is a little-known prophet. He's from kind of a a backwoods and forgotten area called Elkush. We know that the authorship of this book is somewhere between 663 and 612 BC, or about 100 to 150 years after the story of Jonah, which was one of our prophets we read a few weeks ago. 
Nahum's primary theme is the divine judgment and destruction of Nineveh, the capital city uh, of the Assyrian Empire, but really Nineveh in this book serves as a representation for the entirety of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were known to be absolutely ruthless. Some have said that no empire has ever matched their savagery. They were ferocious in their conquests, employing tactics of total destruction, burning entire cities to the ground. They tortured, raped, and killed any and all that stood in their way of what they thought was their right to total world domination. At the authorship of this book, it's believed that not only is Assyria the most powerful empire in the world, but Nineveh was the largest city in the world, and both served as the most significant enemy to the people of God. When Jonah entered the city 100, 150 years earlier, you'll remember that the people repented of their ways. But now, a century, century and a half later, their pride had led them back to their vile wickedness and brutality. Enter the Oracle of Nahum. This is when we read the book of Nahum. The book itself is broken into three chapters, and I'll give you a, a little bit of a taste. So chapter one, the focus is to clearly bring attention to the fact that God is the Lord of all history, that in his sovereignty, he is kind and gracious, but he will bring judgment when needed. Verse three says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, something we've read multiple different times uh, throughout these prophets. Uh, but it goes on to say, the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. This picture of God and his judgment would have been hopeful and comforting to hear as the tribe of Judah awaited their rescue from this great enemy, the Assyrians. In verse 7, says, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. And continuing in verse 15, it says, Look, there on the mountains, the feet of the one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, O Judah, and fulfill your vows. Nor, no more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. Chapter 1 assures the people of Israel that God is, in fact, still for them. While chapter 2 begins to pivot and paint a vivid picture of how God is for them through his divine judgment of the Assyrians. Verse 7 says, It is decreed that the city be exiled and carried away. Its slave girls moan like doves and beat upon their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool and its water is draining away. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. And in verse 13, it says, I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will burn up your chariots in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will leave you no prey on earth. The voices of your messengers will no longer be heard. The picture of God's judgment is incredibly harsh in chapter 3, or in chapter 2, I'm sorry, but in chapter 3, it goes into a whole nother level as it describes with greater detail their total divine destruction at the hands of other invaders. Verse 5, 
I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift up your skirts over your face, which is an Old Testament way of describing rape. I will show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth. I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. Verse 19, king of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For you who has not felt for who has not felt your endless cruelty? These eight to ten verses should give you a taste of Nahum's description of God's judgment being brought upon Nineveh. There's obviously more in these three chapters, but putting myself in this situation, I can see the desire, uh, I can understand how it might be comforting to hear a word about the fall of my enemies in this way. But I'm not in this situation, and therefore, in my honesty, I have to be willing to say it's hard to know what to do with this book. It's hard to know what to do with a God whose actions seem as horrific as the ones that we just read. I'm not the only one who thinks this. The late New Testament theologian Paul Achmeyer says, all scripture is inspired by God, but maybe with the exception of Nahum. The picture of God that Nahum offers us is one of a sovereign, kind, and steadfast God, as we saw in chapter 1, a God that is slow to anger and is a place of refuge, while at the same time a God that is brutal, that is vicious, that is judgmental, that is vengeful, that is violent. A God that not only allows but uses shame, murder, and rape as a way to taunt and bring punishment upon people. New community, this should be unsettling to you. This should create significant questions as you read. Julie last weekend spoke on Micah and talked a little bit about God's harsh judgment, saying the phrase that God hates evil and that God is for his people and for the oppressed. If this is all we knew about God, then I think we could read Nahum and say, yeah, God did what he had to do in this time. But then later, Julie makes the statement, God's love is steadfast and doesn't change. It can't be added to or taken away. She says, you are a child of God. The person you pass on the street is a child of God. The person struggling or hurting is a child of God. God's love is steadfast. It is never ending. God is a God of love. You are loved. You see, we know this to be true about the God we serve. And so I have to ask myself when I read Nahum or, or books like it, aren't the Assyrians God's children as well? Or does he have the capacity to love some people and not others? You see, this unearths a fundamental question. If God is unchanging, then how can you resolve the God of Nahum and the person and teachings of Jesus? How you answer this singular question deeply impacts your faith, and profoundly influences 
your worldview? I suggest most answer in one of three ways when reading Nahum or any of the other Old Testament passages that put God's character and the way that he deals with people on display in similar ways to what we've just read. Here are the three ways. The first one, I think, is you just skip it. Maybe you read it because it's part of the Bible in one year, but you don't actually read it, let alone try to seek understanding. See, if you don't read it, then it probably doesn't exist. And if it doesn't exist, then you don't have to wrestle with an understanding of God that you don't like. This view, this uh, answer to the question, is usually centered completely on the Jesus we see in the New Testament and perhaps a few select Old Testament stories that our current Christian culture has already neutered to make safe, i.e. the garden, the flood, the exodus, the lives of Joseph, Samson, David, etc., when this is the answer to that fundamental question, I believe you miss the full and redemptive story of Israel. I believe you miss a significant portion of the story that can help not only to enliven your faith, but ground it to something beyond a me-centered and consumeristic Christian life. The second way you might read is to read it through a traditional and literal lens believing there is a time and place when God needs to and is justified acting this way. This is the ultimate, his ways are beyond me sentiment. Here it's believed if God's judgment leads to the murder of sinful people, then we should not only heed this story as a warning for our behavior, but as an indication of what God thinks about them, whoever them might be in your life. This perspective requires beautifully choreographed theological gymnastics when it comes to reconciling the violent God of the Old Testament and the person of Christ. To keep intact the belief that God is immutable, it's held firmly that God at different times can and should be distinctly a God of insurmountable love and also a God of horrific wrath that God's judgment in dealings with us can embody love for those who are right before him or vengeance for those who are not. Not only can this lead to a dysfunctional understanding of our relationship with God, but it can easily be the theological basis for exclusion, war, conquest, genocide, violence, slavery, torture, all which have been done historically in the name of the Lord. Our third option is you just stop reading altogether. Most that find themselves in this world have a patchwork faith of a few key biblical stories held together largely by a positive experience in a church community. Then when the individual is hungry and desiring more, they turn to the Old Testament and quickly become acquainted with a God not only capable, but seemingly eager to do atrocious things to those that didn't listen to his instructions or follow his rules. The distance between the stories of miracles, healings, of second chances, and unfathomable love are quickly drowned out by a vindictive God hell-bent on either forming people into the way he wants them or, or destroying them altogether if they resist. And sadly, in this moment, many walk away from their Christian faith. Personally, I'm not sure any of these answers are great. So let me offer an alternative this morning. The alternative is that we read Nahum 
in its given context as part of the greater story of Israel. We read Nahum through the lens of the crucified Christ, what we believe to be the very picture and essence of God. In this way, rather than questioning God's character, we question our reading and traditional understanding of Scripture. To take a phrase from Greg Boyd, we read with the understanding that something is going on behind the scenes. Now, the beauty of this alternative is you get to decide, right? Maybe you have always skipped over Nahum and, in fact, are thinking about skipping over the rest of this podcast because you feel very close to Jesus. That's your prerogative. You might read literally and think my hermeneutic is soft or weak. You're totally fine to hold that position. Maybe it's Nahum or books like this that have created distance between you and God. And if that's where you're at, I understand why you might be there. But here is what I ask to each of those people and to those listening that still might not have a clue what I'm even talking about. Entertain me for the remainder of our time and let's approach Nahum as if something else is going on behind the scenes. And in so doing, see what it might teach us for today. So let's pull back the curtain a little bit. First, I believe it's critical that we read and understand that Nahum is poetry. In fact, the prophetic vision he brings is most easily categorized as war poetry. Going back to the verses I read earlier, you can see his extensive use of metaphor and simile and hyperbole in his communication. The intent is not a transference of facts, but an invocation of emotion. You could make the argument it's a piece of prophetic propaganda in a way, a letter to convince the tribe of Judah of something very very specific. Now, that doesn't mean that the destruction of Nineveh didn't happen. In fact, it did in 612 BC, when after a period of civil war, multiple neighboring empires combined forces to conquer Nineveh. One of the greatest and largest ancient cities was completely destroyed, never to return to its position of power. So was the general prophecy that Nineveh would would fall true? Yes, it was. Nineveh, and in turn the Assyrians, violent brutality ultimately turned back on them. But did everything Nahum write happen exactly as he wrote it? I'm going to guess not, because that's not how poetry works. Poetry is a means to communicate through mood and feeling and persuasion, not through fact and metrics and data. This then gives us a different reading lens, a lens that provides foundational truth about the way that things are, not necessarily truth about the way things happened. Brings me to point number two. It's believed that Nahum was writing to the people of Judah with the hope that Assyrians would catch wind of the message, almost as if he accidentally cc'd them on the email. In fact, the translation of Nahum means comfort, In this time, the depiction of the fall of Assyria, the largest and greatest oppressor of the people of Israel, would have come as a great comfort to the readers in Judah. The Assyrians had already captured the northern kingdom, and they were the greatest threat to Judah. So imagine how you would write a letter to the people to remind them that God was, in fact, in control. In a period of time, where neighboring tribes worshipped gods of relentless violence and the means of conquest was the only way to secure your future as a people, could it be that Nahum, given his experience, given his call as a comforter, 
given the context in which he lived, took the liberty to speak of God's power in ways that mirrored the gods of their enemies. Could Nahum's limited experience have influenced how he believed his all-powerful God would act in this time? Mayer and Serfontan, in a paper coming out of the University of Johannesburg, uh, sorry, Johannesburg, <clears throat> argue uh, in a, a specific study of this book, they argue, why would Yahweh, the Almighty God, engage in rape and violence? Why would he feel the need for revenge? Why would he kill or command people to kill? Why would he be a male and act in a certain manner towards women and the ostracized? Perhaps the author of the text and the ideology of the society want him to act in such a manner. Thus, God becomes their construct, a construct that is totally different from what and who he really is. Now, this may seem crazy, but the disciples were constantly doing this and being corrected by Jesus. Too often, we see God in the ways that we want. The Christian journey of growth is one that continues to eradicate our own pretenses and seeks the reality of who God is in Jesus Christ. Maybe, or could it be, that God, in his magnificent sovereignty, is willing to accommodate a picture of himself being portrayed in the Old Testament that was not always 100% accurate. Greg Boyd writes this about accommodation. God had to accommodate his self-revelation to the spiritual state and cultural conditioning of his people in the late ages leading up to Christ. Only gradually could God change people's hearts and minds so they could receive more and more truth about his true character and about his ideal for them. And whenever God's people have come to understand more about his true character and will, they have always been able to look back and find divinely intended meanings in earlier writings that the original authors could not have perceived. The unchanging God, which is perfectly seen in the per person of Christ, accommodates his people by allowing them to grow in their understanding and response. In this way, God is not heavy-handed, nor is he controlling, but rather a God that extends freedom and unmerited grace to people throughout all ages who seek to know him. God's accommodation to his people throughout history is an important subject for discussion far greater than what can and should be detailed in this podcast. However, I will let you know it has been a significant source of encouragement to me and has been a firm handhold in my faith as I seek to more fully understand the scriptures, especially ones like Nahum. If you want to dive deeper into this idea, reach out. We can begin a discussion or point you towards further resources. But let us move to our last idea and what I think might be the most significant. What if God's intention for the book of Nahum was not to teach us about his character, but to teach us about ourselves? Maybe this book finds itself in the canon of Scripture to communicate a fundamental truth about humanity, the truth that violence is never the way forward. We, in our fallen world, are violent. The violence of humanity is captured in the first few pages of Scripture when Cain murders his brother Abel. And since that time, violence has beget violence. 
you can read these stories and believe God orchestrates the violent rebellions, conquests, and brutality, or you can read it as a way that the only way God could be truly loving was to extend freedom to his creation, and in so doing stands with us brokenhearted as we act violently on our own volition, further perpetuating the cycle we read in Nahum. You can read Nahum and believe God divinely used the Babylonians, Medes, and others to murder, rape, and conquer the Assyrians as punishment for their wickedness and a way to show his favor to Israel. Or you can read it as a description of the Assyrians' violent chickens coming home to roost and a warning to all people that violence only ever brings about more violence. As Jesus says in Matthew 26, as he is being arrested and his disciples begin to revert to violence. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. I believe Nahum can and should serve as a sober reminder that the violent tendencies many of us harbor within have to be exposed and rooted out. This is the call Christ places on our lives. Stanley Howarth says this, I say I'm a pacifist because I'm a violent son of a bitch. I'm a Texan. I can feel it in every bone I've got, and I hate the language of pacifism because it's too passive. But by avowing it, I create expectations in others that hopefully will help me live faithfully to what I know is true, but that I have no confidence in my own ability to live out at all. That's the part of what nonviolence is the attempt to make our lives vulnerable to others in a way that we need one another. To be against war, which is clearly violent, is a good place to start. But you never know where the violence is in your own life. To say you're nonviolent is not some position of self-righteousness. You kill and I don't. It's rather to make your life available to others in a way that they can help you discover the ways you're implicated in violence that you didn't even notice. What I find interesting about Nahum is the use of the phrase good news in 115. The good news for Israel was the deliverance that they were hoping to receive from the Assyrians. Maybe the means by which, by which they wanted the deliverance was wrongly attributed, but the good news has always been about deliverance. It's been God's movement to free us, to free the Israels, the Israelites, from the bondage of sin, and perhaps for our own purposes this morning, from the cycle of violence. Not only was Jesus' message clearly nonviolent, as we see in the Sermon on the Mount, but we are called into the action of peace when he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. As followers, we don't just hide from the violence in our world or the violence we feel in ourselves. We name it, we expose it, and we actively seek peace. When the world around turns back toward violence, like described in Nahum or in the garden with, the closest, with those closest to Jesus, we are the ones that stand for and work toward peace. I think Howarth captures a sentiment that many of us feel but maybe don't know how to enact. What I find really interesting in Nahum is the use of the phrase good news in chapter 1, verse 15. The good news for Israel was the deliverance that they were hoping to receive from the Assyrians. 
Maybe the means by which they wanted the deliverance was wrongly attributed. But just as it was for them, so it is for us that good news is about deliverance. It's what the good news has always been about. It's God's movement to free us from the bondage of sin and perhaps for our purposes this morning from the cycle of violence. Not only was Jesus' message clearly nonviolent, as we see in the Sermon on the Mount and other teachings, but we are actually called into the action of peace. Jesus in the Beatitudes says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. As followers, we don't just hide from the violence in our world or the violence we feel in ourselves. We name it, we expose it, and we actively seek peace. When the world around turns back toward violence, like described in Nahum, or in the garden with the closest to Jesus drawing their swords, we are the ones that stand for and work toward peace. The cross is the place we have to remember that violence was exposed for exactly what it is and showed that it never ultimately works. Jesus willingly endured all the brutality, all the hatred, all the violence humanity could muster so that we could live differently. God hung on the cross, absorbing the violence of the world to free us from its destructive cycle. Speaking to this idea, Jacob Wright says, the image of God on the cross deconstructs all images of a violent God. The crucified God simply hangs lifeless, bloody, and marred as a symbol to humanity, drawing out empathy, exposing victimization, condemning violence, demonstrating forgiveness, making peace, deconstructing false images of God, casting down powers, and creating a new humanity with a resurrection life. Having a biblical defense for anything is easy. You can have a solid biblical defense for slavery, genocide, war, polygamy, nationalism, sexism, and racism. But when we hold these things accountable to the image of God revealed in Christ, we find them to fall short. For the Israelites, the good news was the promised protection and refuge of their God through the means of the destruction of their enemies. For us, the good news is Christ and his deliverance. The good news is the freedom of not having to live with enemies at all. The good news is the coming kingdom, a kingdom of deliverance, where we are called out of our violent tendencies, passed down through generations, and called in to a life of peace. The minor prophets can be tough. To understand. Nahum is certainly challenging, and as I said when we first started, it has to be wrestled with. Nahum's prophecy is not one that we should bypass, nor do I believe it's intended as a warning of God's coming vengeance for all who might screw up. Rather, it's a biblical message helping us to better understand ourselves and point us toward the nonviolent action, person, and call of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a message that gives us the courage to live differently. Let me leave you with the words of someone far more able to speak on this subject than I. Dr. Martin Luther King said this, 
The ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie, nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder the hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. As Christ is our light, and as Christ is our love, new community, let us be these things to a sometimes violent and misguided world around. Go in peace today. Amen. As you step over the threshold of this new day or this upcoming week, may you more fully experience God's presence. May the words of your mouth and the meditations of your heart bring great joy to the Father. May you sense the Holy Spirit dwelling over your mind, your emotions, your actions, and your intentions, and may you come to delight in following Yahweh. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with everyone. Amen.